3: Hello, Duke fans. We are glad to have you on episode 251 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. We have a special guest with us today, and we will get into the NCAA's announcement about how March Madness will look this season. But before we get into all that, I'm Donald Wine, your host for the show, coming to you from my home in Washington, D.C. I got the rest of the gang here with me, Sam Klein in Boston. Hello to you
4: hello hello let's skip all the fun stuff because we have a great interview to bring you for this episode we haven't heard it yet because we're about to do it live but
1: i have i have uh, good thoughts
3: absolutely and jason evans the resident atlian hello to you
1: yeah i've been excited about this interview for weeks and weeks so let's do it
3: yeah as we mentioned we have a special guest with us today today we have a guy who has won a national championship for duke he has played football at duke he was responsible for a lot of things, including being the main basketball teammate for the most powerful man in the world, and above all, he is a member of the greatest class in Duke history, the class of 2004. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, we have Reggie Love joining us today. Reggie, my man, thanks for joining us. Great to have you on.
0: No, well, I, I appreciate you guys making the time and, and, and extending the invitation. Uh, it's great to be here with such a uh, you know, passionate and, and, and enthused alum.
3: Oh, yeah. We're, you know, I mean, we go way back. You know how enthusiastic I <laughs> can be. And and Sam and Jason are equally as enthusiastic as I am. Uh, Reggie, I want to begin with our time at Duke, beginning with the fact that you came to Duke on a football scholarship and you were on the team and one of the best wide receivers we had during our four years. But you were also able to join the basketball team for that 2001 team our freshman year. First off, how did that come to pass? Was that something that occurred when you got to Duke or had you and Coach K and Coach Franks discussed this option before you committed to Duke football?
0: Look, I'd say that was really the first deal I ever cut as a high schooler. So Duke was early in offering me a scholarship when I was right after um, uh, my junior season. I'm sorry, my sophomore season of, of football. And... You know, I kind of went through the process, uh, the summer before my senior high school season, I went and I visited Duke, Wake, Carolina, UV, and UVA. And of all the universities and coaches that I talked to, uh, I think, uh, I think Coach Frank's comment was, he says, look, if you're good enough to play Duke basketball, you can play all the basketball you want. Uh, and, you know, I think he probably thought, uh, the, the possibility was significantly lower given that I think there were five McDonald's All-American on that, uh, team the year before us. And so when it came down to it, you know, this is when you still had tapes. And so I sent that summer before I went to the Duke, I, I had a tape where Providence Day had played Oak Hill and, you know, on that Oak Hill team, it was like Travis Watson. Cliff Hawkins, who ended up playing at, uh, Kentucky. I'm forgetting, uh, the kid from Wake Forest, who was like 6'11, who used to, I mean, I guess this is going to drive me crazy. But, uh, yeah, so I sent the tape to, to Johnny Dawkins and Johnny Dawkins was like, okay, this kid, you know, had a double-double and 20 points and against this top, you know, 10 team in the country for high school. And, and then the funny thing that also happened was that Coach K's daughter, Jamie K, played in the same conference that i played in in high school so she went to derm academy i went to providence bay and so coach k and coach Wojciechowski, they actually show up to a derm academy game where jamie's playing and while she's changing uh after their game because you know the girls play before the boys wojo to this day still says like you know look the guy that i saw play against derm academy i've never seen him shoot that well ever again And so I probably over indexed on a couple of games and, and then I was lucky enough when football season ended, there was a spot for me to walk on and, and probably never get a chance to really see the court. Um, but Carlos Boozer towards the end of that year broke his fifth metatarsal and, you know, coach K came up with this strategy around, you know, we we're going to be faster, we we're going to be better condition, we, were we weren't going to be the biggest team, but we we're going to be the fastest. And so that brought me into the lineup.
3: So you're thrust into this role, Carlos Breiser goes down at that Maryland game. A lot of people are like, well, our chances have taken a huge hit because now we're going with Reggie Love and Casey Sanders and and we have not seen Reggie play that much. What was what was that responsibility like? Like, what, what was it like to be all of a sudden, you know, you're on the bench and you're not playing as much as you probably want. And now you're thrust into a borderline starter role or just this center by committee.
0: You know, I probably was like a little too young and naive to have been like overly stressed out about it because like you grow up you know, as a kid, like always like dreaming to want to play. And so for to finally have an opportunity, even though the circumstances were not necessarily uh, more than ideal, you know, look, I would rather have Carlos Boozer than me. And so even though the circumstances were unfortunate, I thought I was excited about the opportunity. And, you know, I I think probably the biggest point, and I always say this about life, is that life is not fair. You know, you never know how many cracks you get at it or how many opportunities you get. All you can really do is prepare. And prepare and prepare and then hopefully your number gets called, you know, but I think uh, the worst thing in life is like y- your number finally gets called and then somehow uh, you're, you're not prepared because you, you never thought it would, would get called. And then you're stuck with this concept that y- you never know if it, get, if it gets called again. So an immense amount of pressure, but was unbelievably excited for the for the opportunity and the chance.
3: Of course, you go on to the national championship. You also were a team captain. Uh, your senior year, at, or your final season at Duke. I guess it was technically it, your your fifth year after football. Uh, but what was yeah. that moment like for you, and how did that change your approach to the game, or even to that season?
0: It was actually a pretty impressive point in the sense that I realized that because I didn't play basketball when I was a junior or my fourth year, because I was I got had the knee injury, and then I was getting ready for the for the combine and so what you re- realize is that you're the the old guy on this team and there were you know my that football season were my fifth my fourth year of football we had uh almost i think we had 15 seniors uh between fourth year and fifth years we had nine guys to go uh at least get free agency with pro teams and so football as a senior was kind of like led by committee but then when I came back for my fifth year, you know, there was no Chris Duhan. There was no Sean Livingston. There was no Andre Sweet. There was no, uh, Luol Deng. Dang. And so you kind of had this, this space where you're the oldest guy. And, you know, coach would say, like, this is the only guy that even knows what it's like to win a championship, uh, on the team. Right. And I think coach made a, a funny comment and he said, look, I'm going to make Reggie a captain, not because, of how many, how he shoots the ball. I actually want him to shoot less. It's really about how he approaches the game. You know, it doesn't matter if he had a root canal or, you know, his girlfriend broke up with him. Every day he comes to the to the gym and, like, leaves it all out in between the lines, you know. And and actually, his kindest comment was like, you said, look, if everyone played as hard as Reggie played, we'd win national championships every year. Uh, that being said, the irony of that season about... A month after I was named Captain, I broke my fifth metatarsal and missed a month and a half of the season
3: yeah that that's really unfortunate that you that your season went that way, but I also want to end your our our time at Duke with this, as I mentioned, you were the star wide out for the football team while doing all this the success on the football side was few and far between. We won't get into that part, but what was your time like on the football team? Cause you're one of a few that balanced two big time sports at the same time. How was that balance like for you?
0: Yeah. I mean, look, I, I'd say that I was tired all the time and, and probably that
3: I can imagine. Uh,
0: <laughs> I can probably say that it gave me great perspective because, like essentially in life, I've never really been that tired ever again. So, you know, you're working on a campaign uh, for presidency and you're working, you know, 10, 20 hours a day, you know, you go to sleep at night, you know, you don't have a bruised uh, shoulder, you don't have a dislocated finger, you're not slightly concussed. And so uh I'd say that one, it was, it was definitely a challenge, but I'd say I love the game, right? Like I love the game of basketball uh so much that it seemed to be worth the sacrifice you know my best friends come from the world of sports you know the game has given me so much i was never really a star player but you know if it weren't for the game of basketball probably would have never you know developed a, a bond or relationship with the leader former leader of the free world barack obama probably don't you know ever win a national championship and I probably never get the chance to learn from someone like a Coach K and a Johnny Dawkins and a Steve Wojciechowski. So, you know, I, I have to say that uh, the game's been really good to me. So I, I never really look back on them and say, you know what, that was really hard. I always just kind of say it was hard, but it, I was really fortunate.
1: Okay, so Reggie, you just provided the perfect segue to my set of questions. We're going to talk a little about your time in the White House. I, I was saying to Donald and Sam, I, I haven't gone and looked at the exact numbers, but I suspect there have been more NBA MVPs, more people have won the most valuable player award in the NBA in the past 20 years than there have been body men for the president of the United States. You, you have performed one of the most unique jobs in the world. So let's talk about your time in the Obama White House. How did it happen? How'd you get that gig? And what did it entail? Well, one Duke
0: alumni do over index for that role. A couple Duke guys had the job for Bush 43 and for and for Bush 41.
1: Oh, by, um, by the way, what's what's the exact title? Everyone refers
0: to it as body uh, man, but Yeah, I think body man is like sort of the traditional phrase. I think if you were to like look at like a like a document it would say like special assistant in personal aid. Like that's like kind of the 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 role there. In terms of the journey for me, clearly, I never really knew that I would work for the president of the United States, right? And even when I took the job for then-Senator Barack Obama, had you said to me that this guy was going to be president in two years or two and a half years, I would have said, look, maybe, but not likely. And so I, I actually moved to D.C. really because I kind of got the bug to want to serve. When I kind of looked back at the opportunities that I'd had in life, a lot of it, Really stemmed along the fact that I, I'd, I'd gotten a great education in high school and I was able to to get to Duke and when I came to Duke, I was quote unquote college ready. And had I not gone to a Providence Day, I, I probably would not have been prepared to even have gotten into Duke uh, yet alone to be able to to handle the workload when I got there. And so what I generally believed is that you know everyone should have access to these types of things and I, and Barack Obama, who was the only African-American member of the U S Senate at the time of a hundred really represented the voice of trying to bring more quality and more access, uh, to those who have, who have less. And so I started working in the mailroom, just kind of doing all the things that a staff assistant does, you know, constituent services, answer the phone, take note for legislative correspondence, answer mail, open mail, print mail, fold mail, give tours. After I digitized our mail process, I moved over to his his pack and uh, his campaign for reelection for the U.S. Senate. At the end of that year, after that midterm election, Barack Obama had decided with his wife he was going to run for president. And everyone was like surprised. And Pete Rouse, who was the chief of staff at the time, said, well, what do you want to do? I was 23 and a half, about to turn 24, never worked on a presidential campaign. I said, look, you tell me what you think I'd be good at. I'll go do it. If I'm not good, don't fire me. and just move me. <laughs> and he basically said, "Why don't you go on the road and take care of stuff?" And had you told me that take care of stuff would be you know everything from finding scrambled eggs at six thirty in the morning in Keene, New Hampshire to like playing pickup basketball games with firefighters in Iowa, I would have said that uh, and, and being gone twenty nine days of the month except for the, you know, one or two days, he would come back to the Senate for a crucial vote. I would have told you that, you know, maybe that's not like the best job to have, but ultimately it was a great opportunity for me to, you know, to see him grow and also to learn and to the country and to see the world. And I think the thing that you really find out about America, even as we look at the country right now and 70 million people voted for Trump and, you know, Biden only won by a slim margin. You know, I do truly believe that people are, are much closer when it comes to the issues of of America, right? It's like healthcare and education and access to a good job and retire with retire with dignity. You know, I think that you know a country that can elect a funny named kid who was born in Hawaii who grew up in Indonesia to the presidency of the United States. It, it's a much more united country than I think um, our mainstream media and, and social media kind of tells us uh, about the country today.
1: You mentioned a moment ago playing basketball. I mean, different presidents have different leisure activities, but Barack Obama loved to play basketball. Tell us a little bit about what those games were like. I'm, I'm guessing uh, uh, you were one, probably one of the better players <laughs> playing in those games or, or did they have like well, the, real <laughs> ringers? depends on the game you know during the campaign you know you really
0: were kind of like uh you, you had a scarcity of talent so i would probably say i was on the further spectrum of of higher levels of talent in the campaign and and so we're playing against some union guys in new hampshire and i like you know i'm still young i'm like just 24 i'm still like know how to like play the passing lanes and like i'm still have like my coach k you know training sort of entrenched and we're kind of up 20 points. Someone like makes a lazy pass. I deflected, I run the ball down, I go down the court and I like dunk the basketball and I come back and like the president or the candidate at the time hadn't even run down. And he kind of says, this is a look Reggie, like, I get it. We want to win, but we also want their support. And so <laughs> would always laugh about that moment because when when he was elected president, we would play probably every weekend or every other weekend with Arnie Duncan, John Rice, whose sister, Susan Rice, she was a UN rep, but then Adam Harper, who now works at the NBA, who played in college. Uh, you just had a bunch of guys who were like D1, D2, D3 players, range of age from 25 to about 55. And so we would have these super competitive runs and Arnie Duncan, who played at Harvard he always had his team well organized you know they'd be running this two three high motion the old guys would be backdooring the shit out of us and i used to have to say to some of my friends who would come and play you know because everyone they play with the president and they like people are so excited but like sometimes i'd be like look man you just got your ass kicked by some 40 year old. like what are you smiling about like you should be embarrassed it's like yeah but like look i was just on the court with obama and i was like yeah, no, like I, that's a very low bar. And he would always give me a hard time because, you know, I'd be so mad, you know, like we play on a Saturday and I'd still be I'd be mad until the next Saturday. And he'd, he'd be talk trash talking. I finally, you know, had to say to him and I told him, I said, look, you're going to have to stop bullying my teammates. He would say, he was like, oh, you're going to call that foul. And I was like, well, it was a foul, sir. Like, <laughs> you can't. You can't tell someone to not call a foul because you're the president. And he was like, look, man, if people call foul, they call foul. But like, I'm not pressuring anyone. And I was like, no, you are totally taking advantage of your position in the world right now.
1: <laughs> wait, wait. So I, I have to know, Talk, give me a scouting report on Barack Obama's game.
0: One, I would say can't leave him wide open. You want to make him a shooter, but late contest. He's a he's going to put the ball on the ground to go right, uh, but is never going to finish with his right hand. He's always going to come back to the opposite shoulder, uh, and people always kind of forget that about it. You know, people feel the pressure on the right-hand drive, and then they miss the, the counter to the left hand. He's, and he's got good timing, and he's got good basketball IQ. I'd say the one thing about him that best part about his game is that he always gets the, the guys on his team to play better. Like, people – plays the game better they share the ball better they make better passes they're less egos you know I think people will say oh well if the leader of the free world can like you know uh pass up an open shot so can I
1: I like that that you know it kind of fits the personality that we expect him to have hey last question I have about your time in the White House your amazing time in the White House I'm guessing and I don't know you can tell me if you've got you know no real opinion on this I'm guessing that you had had multiple chances to interact with Vice President Biden, who is, of course, now our President Elect. You know, not asking well, yeah, you for man. political, you know, commentary or anything like that. Just tell us a little bit about what what he was like and and what your interactions with him were like, as we you know were sixty some odd days from from him assuming um, that that important office. I think there are three main points about Joe Biden. One is a guy that is
0: one hundred percent committed to being a public servant, you know, believes in using government to do good, using government to solve challenging problems that ultimately, you know, hopefully have historical impact on the country. You know, an example being the Affordable Care Act and the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act were historic pieces of legislation that would not most likely have been passed with the size and scale had he not been such a, a great advocate and such a great whipper of vote. Two, he's likable, man. Like, he's a nice guy. And the more you get to spend time with him, the more you begin to connect with him. And I think, I think the last piece of it, I think he's his experience. You know, the guy has been someone who's seen the, the world evolve in so many ways. And he has enough experience to know uh, how to inspire other people to come in and to serve. Uh, and I think that's where you know government becomes really interesting and really cool when you have someone who's lived a life and has a message that inspires other people to wanna make that same sacrifice. He's been really good over the years and I think that's where he'll be really effective as president in the United States.
4: Reggie, I think that's a, a great transition to talk about some of the kind of modern day issues that, that are swirling around us both in college sports and, and around society, right now there's a lot of talk about the nature of the student athlete. What does it mean to be a student athlete? How are student athletes contributing back to the university? What sort of compensation are they due or, or, or recognition? What's your perspective on on all of that as as we're hearing so much about changing NCAA legislation and, and different coaches who are advocating for different things given yeah. your laundry list of, of, of available perspective on that?
0: So one, you're right. I I actually did get. I don't know if you guys remember the Ed O'Bannon lawsuit where he like sued EA for you know yada yada yada. And they, I think the lawyers from that case they all made like fifty five million dollars in fees. Played two sports for like five years or six years, and I got like a check for two hundred bucks, right? And so, I think one, the the ecosystem's complicated, right? When it comes down to it, inherently. Unless you have a coach or school that truly believe in the the full development of these young men and women, ultimately coaches are conflicted. They get paid to win games. Alumni give money to coaches and organizations that win. And every minute a player or student athlete is not focused on the game and focused on sport and focused on their academics, that in a sense is, is is a conflict. It's an inherent conflict. And like I've said to Emra and to others for years, I think that like paying players is great. I think it's a great idea, but it's not necessarily life changing, right? Because ultimately the thing that is life changing is education because if someone goes and they get a great education, the education is there with them forever, irrespective of if you tear a knee up, you get a concussion, you you know, you end up, you slow down, you, you can no longer catch like, You know, education is the great equalizer, and and coaches don't get compensated for how many kids graduate. They get compensated for wins, and that will inherently be the case until people start looking at extending the window in which kids are allowed to participate in that education process. So, like, if I'm a student athlete at Duke, I play four years. Like, in theory, I should be taking the minimum amount of classes possible to let me be on the field and then compete. And then, and the points in time, and when I'm not competing, there should be another sort of pool bundle of some sort of lifetime learning of education, whether it's grad school or second undergraduate degrees. Like, people should have the ability to come back and take classes. And then, with COVID, all these classes are now online anyway. So, like, there's really not like a capacity issue. There's not like some reason that someone couldn't play football for three years or two years play in the league they get an average four or five years of uh competing and then when they're 27 28 they they go back and they get a master's in public health or an MBA or some sort of skill that they can then take on to to go into the rest of the world and mainly because like the other part is that kids who play college sports are left behind they don't get to do internships for the most part that are meaningful by the time they've like finished their, their NFL journey, they haven't really gotten any real transferable skills that allow them to easily go into the marketplace. And there's nothing else, there's nothing that's being done to help enhance those things in an effective way. And so, name, image, and likeness, I think is a good, it's a good starting point. College athletes are now going to be in competition directly with the university for additional marketing dollars but you know maybe universities will be smart and they play it like the nba or they play it like uh, the nfl and you know they say look you can have the kid but you can't have the logo unless you also are a partner with the university and so maybe it expands marketing opportunities for brands to connect with universities on a deeper level in which students can also participate i think at the end of the day i think they're going to be winners and losers i think some people will effectively be able to get a lot of revenue out of the system but I think there are going to be a bunch of people who I think end up being left behind, uh, not left behind, like in a negative way, but the 15th guy on the soccer team probably isn't like getting paid. Right. He probably, he's probably not cutting a deal, but he's probably putting, he or she is probably putting just as much time into the game as the seventh or eighth or the 10th person. I think it'll be interesting. You know, this is going to be probably one of the most significant pieces of legislation in the sports world, that we'll see in our lifetime, and in my mind, it's kind of an experiment.
4: One of the other things that is going on, obviously, in this country all this summer, is is all the social justice activism, and it came to Duke in a big way, where the basketball team led by Nolan Smith came out and had a, a rally back a couple months ago in in support of racial justice. You're a former athlete, you're a member of this team, and you're a very successful black man navigating the world of 2020. What is your perspective on generally the activism that's going on, but but what you've seen out of members of the Duke community on that front?
0: I appreciated Nolan and Nate James and John Shire and all the other alums from the Duke basketball world that you know rallied around Coach K and got Coach K to be vocal, right, I think. Him saying Black Lives Matter was probably, like, one of the most significant things we've seen around inclusion and race in the state of North Carolina, and probably for the game in, you know, decades, probably since Dean Smith. Look, it's weird, right? Because there are a lot of people that, they woke up the day after George Floyd was murdered, and they were like, I can't believe that this is the country that I live in. But then it's like, all right, well, shit, you got the internet, you got books, like. I mean, this country was like basically built on the oppression and suppression of people. And we have been like working to be a better version of ourselves, sometimes two steps forward, one step back. COVID in combination with the internet and social media, it has basically put an accelerant and a spotlight on issues that ultimately have always been the case. There's the element of police brutality and our criminal justice system that ultimately have been skewed uh, in terms of the uh, the disproportionate amount of, of blacks who are affected by it, right? It really comes down down to income and wealth inequality, right? If you go back and look at post Civil War, there was a bank called the Freedmen's Bank, in which was a bank for all black people, because there was still segregation that bank like went under right and every black person that had made a little bit of money 80 cents on every dollar was lost from african American of african americans and if you look at the wealth gap today it is still on par with th- those same disparities now you could make the argument that the middle has gotten bigger but the ends have gotten more extreme more extreme in which you have more african americans in poverty and you've got more White people who are billionaires and multimillionaires. And so, if I don't have access to capital, or if I'm $500 away from being bankrupt, if I get a speeding ticket, if I get an open container citation, if I get anything that puts me in front of the criminal justice system, I can't afford my way to fight out of it, right? There's no expedited trial and lawyer, there's no expunging from the records through third party services. Like, you ultimately are getting the things that you're given, right? Another big challenge is just like housing. We have neighborhoods that are low income and high income, and people say, you know, they use the police as, you know, uh, to solve symptoms and not to solve root causes, right? So if you have people who are living in neighborhoods in extreme poverty, where there's mental issues, there's drug abuse, there's alcohol abuse, Sometimes they don't need a police officer. Sometimes they need a social service worker, or sometimes they need a doctor, or sometimes they need healthcare, and they don't have access to these things. And so in those scenarios, you just end up uh, using the police to solve what we like to uh, believe is like creating quote unquote, safe neighborhoods. This is part of the reason why I believe in public service. Like, We're not gonna solve for these things overnight. We have to be educated, cognizant, and aware of of the country that we live in. We have to understand what our, what a lot of these root issues are and the impact that they've had in, on communities over the years so that we can solve for these things like in a meaningful way. And I'm, I'm on the board of this organization called the National Summer Learning Association. And everyone, we talk about this thing called summer loss. And people are like, what is summer loss? Summer loss is the concept in which if you grow up in a household in which both parents work or it's a single family household and one parent works and there's no school and there's no camps and you don't have accessibility to academic products so that you can grow and learn you know kids in certain neighborhoods they won't continue to develop through the summer and when they come show up to school at the beginning of the next school year they've been in decay all summer because they haven't been enriched and like and ultimately you have to like educate the whole child all the time in order for you know us to create communities where people can thrive and participate in an effective manner but that's just like one example of something that most people don't really know about but i think covid has like show shown a light on that right because you now have parents who are at home like in the summertime camps are closed and they're just like oh my god i'm working and having to deal with these kids how do like people do this and it's like yeah, that's what a lot of households are like across the country.
4: It's an incredible example to highlight and one that certainly like on our show, we're not covering these topics on a daily basis, but maybe not even something that, that a lot of folks have even heard of. So appreciate you bringing it up. We've talked about your illustrious, not so long career so far and, and all the challenges today. So what's next for you? What are you most excited to be working on in the next few years?
0: You know, I'm really excited. I'm, I am I, I work in the financial services industry I'm a senior advisor at Apollo and you know we are in the process of uh, going through what we call sort of a modernization and you know financial services as I mentioned before with the uh, uh, reference to uh, Friedman's bank and income inequality financial services has been you know one of the least diverse industries while at the same time it has been one of the biggest wealth creators you know outside of like in the tech world that we've we've had, and so you know, I'm excited about possibility of like seeing a more diverse and more inclusive Wall Street, you know, over the next five to 15 years. I think that the more diverse the world of financial services becomes, I think the more the higher you get in terms of the reduction of wealth and income inequality, and I think you create higher levels of of financial literacy, and, and I think people and communities begin to start have having conversations that they have not had before. And I think of a great example of this, the guy, John Rogers, who's the CEO of Aerial Investments, he started a school called Aerial Academy. It's all like underserved kids from the South side of Chicago. And like, he gives them all like 500 bucks when they're in middle school or of ele- their an elementary school and they invest that money. And some of it they leave back for the kids coming up, after them and then other parts of it they used to help pay for parts of their college just like when you think of like the impact that you know one guy is having on a school of you know several hundred people things like that begin to happen over time john rogers also played ball at princeton too he played in a couple of games with obama
4: it seems like the the way into into the world of finance for good is just to play basketball (laughs) (laughs) all right so Reggie, we've 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 had you on for quite long enough. If we ever get a chance to speak with a former Duke basketball player, we always have to end the interview asking you for a funny Coach K story. It, or it doesn't have to be funny, but an interesting, fun, unique, any sort of your your favorite Coach K story that either you've told before or that you've never told. Feel free to share it here as as sort of a closing statement.
0: I think probably the funniest story was JJ and I were my fifth year we were going to like our team meal and I think the team meal was at like the university tower or something and JJ and I kind of got there at the same time and we had been uh, watching 24 and we get on the elevator and coach K shows up and he like kind of gets on the elevator as we're talking about 24 you know and I just never assumed that he was like a you know he was the same guy that was like I haven't been to the mall in 15 years right (laughs) and then you know, he gets on the elevator and, you know, he's like agreeing with our comments about the last episode of 24 that we watch and how Audrey
1: was like screwing it up. And so uh, I, I love still it. like
0: laugh about that.
1: <laughs> I love that show. I, I watched 24. Uh, God, I must have seen at least six or seven seasons before I finally gave up on it because it was ridiculous. <laughs> but so ridiculous. glad to hear that, that Coach K and I are both Jack Bauer fans. <laughs> It's like he
0: never sleeps. He never goes to the bathroom. It's like this is what I want for my players. <laughs>
4: yeah, Reggie. Since you since you brought up JJ, now we have to know when are you going on JJ's podcast?
0: That's a great question. I love JJ's podcast. I I, I just watched the Jimmy Butler one. I rewatched the Jimmy Butler one the other day. It's hilarious. I, I'll, I'll tell JJ that i I'm, I'm offended that he's not invited me on as a guest.
4: And and let him know that he's always welcome to do crossover episodes with us. That is that is an <laughs> open invitation. He he, he may have uh-huh. he may have already gotten too big for us, but that's okay.
3: We'll be like the Wednesday night on NBC where you have all the Chicago shows just intertwined with each other. We'll just have all the Duke podcasts lined up next to each other and, and doing crossover. <laughs> we're we're
4: shows. in for that. Yeah, we're in for that.
3: Uh, Reggie, yeah. we just want to thank you once again for joining us today. Terrific insight. Uh, and best of luck to everything that you're doing down the road. I know we'll probably uh, be hanging out soon, hopefully, uh, when this pandemic I mean, is over a at a basketball bummer,
1: game. man. No
0: games, man. I know. Mean, I know. I know. The, only, the only upside is that I'm so glad that I don't feel conflicted about not going to any of these Duke football games this year, man. It's like a tough season to watch, man. And yeah. It started out like Notre Dame. I thought we were competitive. I was like, man, a couple turnovers here and there, we would have been in that game. And, you know, it's just a whole, it just, whew,
1: one a couple turnovers here and there is the story of this Duke season again and again and again. <laughs> yeah. But the challenging thing is is that against Carolina,
0: going into the Carolina game, we led the country in turnovers. We didn't really have many turnovers against Carolina. <laughs> it was like, I was like, I don't know what that story is. Well, we didn't,
4: we didn't hang on to the ball long enough to turn it over against Carolina. I think that was the, that's the problem.
0: Hopefully we bounce back, man. I love I love Cutcliffe and hopefully uh we'll finish strong here on the season and we'll chalk this season up to COVID. I can't imagine like how much stress and pressure it must be to call plays, worry about kids, worry about transmission. I mean, it's just like, you know, it's um, I, I can't imagine the job. So appreciate what he's doing.
3: Absolutely. And Reggie, we appreciate you. Once again, thanks for joining us and we'll see you soon.
0: All right. All right, you guys be good. Thanks again, guys.
3: I think this is a good time to pause here for a quick break. But on the other side, we will react to Reggie's incredible thoughts. And the NCAA makes a decision about the format of March Madness. How will it go? You got to stick around to find out. We're back and we want to once again thank Reggie Love for joining us today. Incredible insight as I mentioned from him on his time at Duke, life in the White House, and some of the issues facing us today. Sam, real quick, I wanted to get your reaction to some of what Reggie discussed with us. What stood out to you?
4: Well, as a recent alumnus of business school and somebody who sat through a number of conversations just like that one with the sort of the leaders of America talking about all the all the different issues and and the the plans that they're having. Man, I would I would work for Reggie Love and and his company, whatever that was in in whatever field, in a heartbeat. I mean, just the the his ability to to jump between topics and and really get to the heart of things and explain things in depth. I mean, I, we've we've done a lot of interviews on this show, and that I think was one of the most impressive one of the most impressive people that we've gotten to talk to. So my overall impression is is just. Uh, is just amazement and, and gratitude that he was able to spend that much time with us.
3: I told you, O'Quaid always does it right. Uh, real quick, I the walk down memory lane for me was great, but I I want to make a point when he was mentioning the Ed O'Bannon lawsuit, and he mentioned how he played you basically five years of of football and basketball and got a check for like two hundred dollars. I was on the intro to both March Madness two thousand three and two thousand four on the intro to the game for two games, two seasons, I got $300 each year. So that tells you what BS it was that guys that have played their ass off were able to only walk away with a check for less than what I got just to record an intro. So, I mean, that tells you what that lawsuit was really like. Jason, what did you, what stuck out to you? Uh,
1: my big takeaway is that Barack Obama calls cheap fouls in basketball. oh that- <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, hey, hey,
3: hey, it's, it's, they're they're questionable files. Those sort of things were just just that insight of being able to go behind the curtain a little bit. We've never actually had to do that, and I think it was great that we had Reggie on to really peel back that curtain of of something that really is. I mean, I live a mile down the street, and it's still all the way up here, way above my pay, pay
1: grade. Look, look, it's it's like I said when when I was setting up the conversation with him. Being the body man for the president is is such a unique position. <laughs> it's it's more unique than being MVP of the NBA. And I, I just think it's uh, it, it's wonderful that Reggie was so willing to, to talk to us so candidly about about the, the really interesting stuff he saw there and re- really, really great stuff from him. And we're so lucky to have had him on.
3: We want to shift gears real quick. I know we, we had quite a lengthy interview with Reggie and, and our recap, but I do want to shift gears quickly to the NCAA because yesterday they made a major announcement about the structure of the NCAA tournament this season. They've made the decision to move the entire tournament to one location. Right now, according to their statement, they're zeroing in on Indianapolis for the entire tournament. It's unclear if they're going to house everything at Lucas Oil Stadium or if they will utilize uh, the Pacers Arena Bankers Life Fieldhouse. But as of now, all the rounds of the NCAA tournament, including the play-in, will likely be in Indianapolis. Jason, good idea for this. I mean, Indy has served us quite well in the past.
1: Yeah, Duke loves Indy. We've we've won a couple national titles. I think it's two national titles that we've won in Indy. So, uh, you know, hey, I, I, I like the location. Um, I, I know people keep on tossing out various other locations. They're like, oh, we could do this in this place or this, you know, I, I think the NCAA is based in that area. And, and there are a lot of reasons it makes a lot of sense. A couple things I want people to be aware of. First of all, this will not be a bubble. There are people out there who are saying, oh, they're going to do the same thing the NBA did. No, they're not. This is not going to be a bubble. It'll be a controlled environment is a controlled environment that they think, you know, that obviously will cut down on travel tremendously and not having these teams traveling around is a really, really smart idea, but it is not going to be a a full bubble where once teams get in, we know everything will be fine. And that brings me to my second point, which is we're going to have, I want everyone's expectations to be set. There are going to be dozens of games across college basketball get canceled because of COVID. I think there's no question about that. There's no one who says that's not going to happen. Maybe Duke will be lucky and play all of our games. Maybe we won't, but there are going to be plenty of teams that have games canceled all across college basketball. So one thing that the NCAA did not really address, and I don't know how they deal with it. Let's say the Saturday before selection Sunday, and you're going to play the games, you know, 10 days from them or something like that a week, you know, usually selection Sunday, you're playing game three or four days later. Let's say you're playing them as much as a week later, the Saturday before selection Sunday, You have a team that suddenly, a couple star players, whatever it may be, one or two players with contact tracing, one or two players get get COVID. The entire team is suddenly out. Let's say it's one of your, a 10 seed. Do you go, okay, well, we'll just play the tournament without this 10 seed. Let's say it's a one or a two seed. Are you not going to play the tournament without that one or two seed? I don't know. I don't think the NCAA has figured out yet. What are you going to do to your tournament if there are teams that suddenly can't play because of COVID? And maybe they can't play for a very short window of time. Do you move the tournament back? There's just so many moving parts in all of this. I'm glad they're beginning to address and figure it out, but there are way more questions than we have answers for there. And there really aren't answers. Uh, Jason, the most important thing I think
4: that you just said is that it's good that they're talking about it this early, because I think that this is, you know, it's, it's mid November right now when, when all this news was coming out this week, the NCAA tournament starts in mid March. That's four months from now. This is basically the longest lead time that we've had from, I don't know if it's just sports, any like major entertainment business saying, we're planning these things this far in advance with knowing about COVID and knowing about the the limitations that the virus and, and the, the various laws in different states are putting on us. So it's great to see that the NCAA is, is way ahead of it. There's a lot more room for flexibility than people realize in planning tournament games because normally it's packed into this this annual sports schedule. Everyone knows the NCAA tournament starts in mid-March and then the NCAA tournament ends right when baseball starts and the weekend after the NCAA tournament is the Masters. All of these things are all are all kind of stacked on top of each other very, very carefully and the the American sports consumer is very attuned to all of it. All of that is thrown out of whack this year. You've you've heard about how basically every sporting event has garnered lower ratings than it has in years past because things are moving around too much. People are distracted by the pandemic. and, And so all of these things are up in the air, which means that the NCAA has to be asking, well, do we have to have the first two rounds on Thursday, Friday, or the first round on Thursday, Friday, with the second round following on Saturday, Sunday? Normally, I think the pitch is, well... You know, Take those couple of days off. Take afternoons off on Thursday and Friday and go watch the tournament. You can afford to take half a day, two days in a row out of your job for from the whole year to go do that. This year, can people really afford to do that? Does it matter? Should they play all the games at night? Should they spread them out over the course of a week? Should they play them all in one day to try to get everything out of the way? All of these questions are still unanswered, and I am sure they have a whole bunch of smart people over there who are trying to figure out what's the best way to get eyeballs in front of televisions for for us to to make this whole venture worth it. Because let's face it, there are hundreds of athletic departments, universities, the NCAA offices, all the schools that get fed by revenue from the NCAA tournament. This is the most important event they put on all year. And they can't afford to screw it up after missing the entire opportunity last year. So my big takeaway is I'm glad they're thinking about it early. We will hear many subsequent reports about about the way the logistics are changing and what kind of flexibility they're building into it to, to see when it's going to happen this is not the first or this is not the last we're going to hear about the the plan for the ncaa tournament and as far as indiana goes i really i mean if there's no fans in the stands who cares what arenas they're playing it in for the most part i think that you know, if they played it in North Carolina and, and got to play the games at at Cameron Indoor and in the Deem Dome and Reynolds Coliseum, that would be cool. They could play it in California, they could play it in Philadelphia, they could play it in New York. There are a bunch of places to play it. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. It's it's getting it, getting it on the calendar and getting it played.
1: So so one little quick thing I want to mention, the wrinkle in all of this is vaccines. We've gotten some incredible news about vaccines in the past week to ten days. That that gives people a lot of hope. I don't know when that hope translates into, dare I say it, people returning to play to to watch sporting events in person. But at some point it probably does. And Sam, you mentioned, oh, the NCAA is starting the tournament mid-March. There it may be as we approach that NCA tournament date that they go, you know what? If we push a little bit. If we wait a little bit, maybe if we do mid-April, suddenly there are ways that we're able to let people in and we actually have fans in the stands. Not full capacity, I don't think. And certainly it would only be people who have vaccine passes or whatever else it may be. But our world is going to change dramatically as those vaccines come online. And that could impact all of this as well.
3: The biggest set of logistics is how do you play those playing rounds in the first round where there's 68 teams playing? How do you do that in one location or or even like one city, right? That's the real logistics. As the tournament gets smaller, it becomes easier to manage the games. I, I think, and again, this is something that they should consider. They should consider having as many of those time slots that they normally have as possible, but they play as many games as possible in those time slots. So, for example, instead of having the first and second round and then waiting a whole week to try and play the regional, go ahead and knock that regional out on Wednesday or the sweet 16 on Wednesday or, or, or or Tuesday, have it on Thursday, the biggest night of TV on of the week. And that way you get as many games out of the way as possible in the off chance that you do have an outbreak amongst the team where they have to withdraw. You have to postpone games that you have the flexibility to do. So that's what I'm going to be looking for from the NCAA over the next couple of weeks as they try to figure out what comes of this. But I agree. It's great that they're looking at this early. They're going to need to because if they miss another NCAA tournament, that'll be what, 20 billion dollars. Uh that is out of the window, out of the window uh from this from missing two in a row and that is going to devastate a vast majority of college basketball programs and, and really just college athletic programs. Before we wrap everything up. I we have a quick note. I want to turn it over to Jason because Jason, you have a really cool achievement that our student athletes at Duke uh have uh, have done uh or just recently was announced. So let's hear the good stuff before we get out of here.
1: Yeah, uh, this is wonderful wonderful news. Duke announced today that 98%, 98% of of student athletes, freshman student athletes uh from this is from the 2010 to 2013 time zone because they because the NCA measures these things in little you know, you got six years to graduate and all that other kind of stuff. But anyway, 98 percent of them graduated. If you got a scholarship to play athletics at Duke during that time frame, 2010 to 2013, 98 percent of those kids have, have graduated. It's an incredible statistic. Duke tied Notre Dame and Northwestern for a 98 percent graduation um, success rate uh, during, during that time frame. A huge huge hat tip to Duke to, to be able to achieve something like that. There were 17 Duke teams that had a 100% success rate meaning every single one of the freshmen who came there between 2010 and 2013 got their degree within 6 years now it's it's worth noting that some of them if you if you leave in good academic standing so a, a guy like you know he's not part of this but a, a a a basketball player like Zion Williamson or RJ Barrett who leaves duke early if they leave in good academic standing then that counts the school doesn't get penalized for guys who leave early but Again, 17 Duke programs had 100% success rate. Duke leads the entire country. It's, it's just incredibly impressive. And, and one thing I want to note, not just about Duke, nationally, of all the schools in the country, nationally, 90% of athletes who you know, enrolled in 2013 graduated within six years. 90% of them graduated. That compares to only 68% for non-student athletes. So we talk a lot about the the time suck that is athletics and and you know, should schools be doing these kind of activities because it maybe it distracts from their primary mission of, of educating people. But when you tell me that 90% of student athletes end up graduating compared to only 68% of regular students, it says to me that there's something about the structure that is given to these student athletes that is that is special and good. And that's again, that's not just Duke, that's every school in the country, 90% of student athletes. Graduating. it's a it's a wonderful statistic and one that should be celebrated
3: and if you note I said student athletes for a reason because at